But I think fundamentally, I think the reason why people don't choose the VCs is because they don't set themselves up to have choice. So what I mean by that is like, you know, I think when I think there's a lot of suboptimal fundraising in this ecosystem. So founders basically kind of like dribble their way in terms of their fundraising process, and so they often end up sometimes with only one term sheet, or oftentimes zero term sheets, right? You know, and so when you have a choice between zero or one, effectively. What's the point of due diligence anyway? Just sign yeah. the capital and take the money, right? And then just fingers crossed, hope that you know everything works out. Hello and welcome to the Sea of Startups, where we dive into the stories behind the startups in Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Kevin Brocklin, managing partner of Indelible Ventures. Now, if you're a founder or funder looking to learn more about what drives the startups in Southeast Asia. This podcast is for you. We're about to sit down with founders to uncover the unique insights into the origins and motivations behind launching their startups. We'll uncover the stories behind the struggles, the ups, the downs, guided from the view of an entrepreneur. So, without any further ado, let's jump into today's show. Right, I am sitting here today with Jeremy Ao. Many of you may know him from the Brave Southeast Asia Tech Podcast, or you may know his work with Monks Hill Ventures out of Singapore. How are you doing today, Jeremy? Good. I'm excited to be on the show.、Uh, I've been following your podcast for a while,、uh, and Malaysia is、uh, dear to my heart.、Uh, always, often go back every couple of years.、Uh, so good to see you. Very cool, very cool. And I just found out recently that you actually have a Malaysia connection yourself. Yeah, I mean, you know, my parents—they were long time ago Malaysian. They grew up there.、Uh, they met overseas,、uh, but ever since then, you know, I've always gone back to Malaysia every couple of years,、um, just to be part of you know Chinese New Year, etc.、Uh, and I think it's just nice、uh, just to be around.、Uh, I think one thing I've realized over time, of course. Is that my story is very very common? I think there's so many folks kind of crisscrossing the borders, right? <laughs> Malaysians coming to Singapore for Chinese New Year, and you know Singaporeans going back to Malaysia for Chinese New Year. You know, for aunts and uncles.、Uh, but really, I think the diaspora is huge.、Uh, from obviously my parents' perspective, yeah, brothers and sisters are in Australia, in America, in Singapore, so all around the world. Uh, yeah, it's really ha- funny how that network kind of spans spans around, and how many times I'm in Singapore and find out that the person's actually、uh, has some heritage through Malaysia. I mean, the border's not that old, so、uh, yeah, I guess it makes I mean, sense. Nineteen sixty-five, so yeah, it's not yeah. a big shocker. <laughs> it's like, oh、exactly. my gosh! I always tell people, it's like, yeah, you know, from my grandparents and parents' perspective, it's like it was the same place, right? <laughs> Effectively, right? And even yeah, in the sixties,、yeah. the border was so permeable that it just didn't feel like. You know, real border in that sense.、Um, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd, ha- I'd have to imagine. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we're, we're chatting. I'm quite curious because you know, you have, you're, you're currently working at as a VC, but you have a background as a founder. I'm kind of curious of how the pathway from founder leads into being VC, and how you see the benefit of gone, having gone through the experience and understanding that pathway that the fellow founders have to go through. Yeah, I'm happy to share a little bit about myself. So for myself, you know, I was in the Singapore Army. I was at UC Berkeley. Then I was a consultant at Bain across Southeast Asia and China on tech and consumer. And after that, I built my first company, which is a consultancy for the social sector. Grew that to pretty much over a hundred clients. You know, profitable.、Uh, then after that, went to Harvard to do my MBA, and then built a second company in education tech, and grew that out to millions of dollars of revenue.、Uh, and then eventually sold that company,、um, and I was a GM for a year. And then came back to Southeast Asia from Boston, New York,、uh, and became a VC with Monksville Ventures. So really, quite an interesting journey.、Um, and I think, from my perspective, I think where I am today kind of draws on so many of these different experiences. Obviously, I think it draws upon my consulting training in terms of problem solving, in terms of advisory,、um, in terms of kind of like knowing where the roles are.、Uh, but also, I think obviously from the founder experience,、uh, I've done two different types of founder experiences. Um, and I think what I've taken away from that is like threefold.、Uh, I think first of all, I think you know how hard building a company actually is.、Um, and then secondly,、uh, I think you understand what a good VC is, and you understand what a bad VC is <laughs> very viscerally. <laughs> 
if you've dealt with one, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then thirdly, of course, is that I think you have a very clear sense about uh, what are the fundamentals for what company building is. So I think I'll talk about the first one first. Um, mm. Firstly, I think uh, building a company is hard, right? And you know, I think that you know, on the finance slash VC side, you know, it's so tempting to be that 50,000 foot view, which is like, okay, just hire this person, right? You know? And then you're like, wait a moment, like, you know, you're a nobody, you're trying to get people to support you, you're, you know, early in terms of your cash flow, you're figuring out your product market fit. And then to hire someone, all this company building stuff is really, really hard. Figuring out product market fit is hard. Building rev- recurring revenue is hard. <laughs> you know, shipping product is hard. Everything is so, so, so hard. Um, and I think one thing I've always taken away is I keep telling, you know, sometimes VCs like, oh, you know, what did you learn? I was like, yeah, building companies really hard. Um, and being a founder is way harder than being an investor. Um, and I think really being sensitive to that is one of the biggest takeaways that I personally taken into the job. Um, and every time I meet a founder, I think I'm very super aware it's just like, it's not easy. Um, the second thing is that as a founder, I fundraise from, I've talked to hundreds of VCs, right? In the US, right? East Coast, West Coast, Boston, New York, SF. Um, and you meet lots of great f- investors. You meet good ones. You meet below average ones. You meet bad ones, right? And mm-hmm. you know, there's a whole spectrum behavior, right? From being late to not being prepared uh, to, you know, whatever it is. But you also meet the great ones, right? People who are making an effort. People who are going carving out time for you. People who understand your business. People who are trying to understand your business. And so I think there's a big spread, a big bell curve for investors. Um, and I think the truth is that as investors, I think there's a lot of incentives pushing you. Because, you know, to be transactional, to be fast, um, to kind of like treat this as a set of deals to really go through. Um, and I keep reminding myself all the time, just like, hey, you know, what is it like to be on the other side of the table, right? I think that's really, really key. Um, and then the third thing that I think quite a bit about is actually like, you know, my own reflection building a company is that actually there are things that are more important to do and that things that are less important to do, right? And I think that transition of being an early founder to building a team and a manager to being a CEO, there are a lot of kind of inflection points and key decisions that are really, really important. Um, and figuring out what's important versus what's urgent uh, while you're understaffed, underpaid, and under-resourced is actually really, really hard. Um, and so I think from the other side of the table now, one of my biggest, I think, value adds is kind of sitting down with the founder and saying, okay, if we go through this stack, um, what's the most important thing that we need to figure out, right? Versus what's really urgent for you to do and how do we prioritize that? Um, and I think all of that comes together in a way where I want to say that I am not a perfect VC and I'm hesitant to say that I'm a great VC, but I think I'm a VC who tries hard and tries hard to understand what's it like to be a founder because I remember what's it like to be. Um, and I think that's the best we can do, yeah. Yeah, I've definitely had a few experiences with some that just want that quarterly report and don't care about anything until things start going wrong. And then all of a sudden they're they're acting as if they've been with you every single day, every single week <laughs> and all of that. Uh, it's it's a bit unfortunate, but I, I do agree that be, no, one, no one can be an expert on any uh, on every single field, on every single company. It's just a matter of being able to bring a little bit of a different ex- uh, experience set. Uh, and perhaps a little bit of pattern matching that can lend uh, some usefulness when these founders are going through their decision-making process, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay. And do you, f- do you find as well that there's a, there's a particular characteristic of founders based upon your own experience, based upon the companies that you've seen, where you can kind of narrow down personality traits uh, is it something that can be taught? Is it something that's innate? How do you view the personality of the founder? Yeah, I mean, I think the question is really about what time horizon it is, right? I mean, is it a time horizon within the next six months where the company has to grow or is this across a time horizon of 10 years, right? And I, I think when I meet somebody, I always think about those two different time frames, right? Which is, is this person the right founder market fit? Is this person the right fit for the company they're trying to build right now? And vice versa, is the product the right fit for what their set of experiences are? Um, and then the second conversation I have is the much longer term conversation about who they could potentially be. The truth is, as humans, I don't think we can change a lot within six months, right? You know, you know, mm-hmm. like so at a moment of conversation, 
yeah, I think it's very much should be like it doesn't matter what's innate or fixed or whatever. I don't think that's really. The, but the question is like, yeah, within the next time frame of like you have to make ship product and hit your results within six months, two years. You know, next two years pretty much dependent on the next six months. Next six months dependent on what's happening the next one month. The next one month is pretty much dependent on who you are today. So I think there's that judgment that is going to be made, right? And that conversation to be had. And I think founders are actually who are self-aware can understand that pretty well. So I think we tend to overestimate how much people can change within six months. Mm-hmm. But I think we, on the other hand, underestimate how much people can change over the course of 10 years. And so I think what I mean by that is just because you're bad at pitching right now, it's pretty hard to fix. I think it's fixable, it's trainable, mm-hmm. especially when you get a right coach, the right bootcamp. And um, you know, at the Brave Southeast Asia Tech Podcast for ourselves at www.bravesea.com, we're actually starting to build out some of that training materials and events to help just drill people on how to pitch. I think there's some significant improvement you can make, uh, but still, it's still marginal in that sense. Um, because in the grand scheme of things, I think you can get somebody who's below average to maybe average or above average. You can make someone who's good to great, but I don't think you can really go from below average all the way to great within you know, six months. But within a course of 10 years, I think it's very doable. So I think that's where I think, I think when, when I was a founder, I had to get feedback, right? And so mm-hmm. part of that was actually just how hard to fix it within six months was. But even today, you know, the kind of intentionality I have around my own mannerisms, my own communication style, a lot of it is actually based on feedback that I received two years ago, 10 years ago. Mm. And I'm still working on that feedback, right? Uh, because, you know, it's just, it takes a long time. Like, for example, getting confident in public speaking. No mm. way you can get confident within six months. I mean, it's just yeah. so hard. But over 10 years, you can totally do it, right? And I think we see that in children. I mean, the difference between what they can do between one years old and 11 years old is super tremendous. I know you're a parent. I'm a parent as well. Yeah. Super tremendous, right? 10 years, you can do anything, right? You know? Right. Yeah. Uh, and 21, many founders are 21 when they first start out and they're often working on companies that are suboptimal in terms of market size or product market fit. But when they're 31, they can totally solve it, right? So I think that's, um, the time frame is, I think, a real huge factor that's there. Um, and so I think as a VC, when you're having this conversation with them, I think, you know, you kind of have to have that frank conversation which is like, I'm giving you feedback at a company as it is today and I'm giving you feedback about how you could improve in your skill set over the next 10 years, right? Um, because then the second part of it is actually quite tricky, right? Which is that a VC sees thousands of companies at mm-hmm. this snapshot point of time. And each VC is probably going to do about maybe five to 10 investments a year, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you think about it, that's a crazy selection rate, right? I mean, that's like effectively at a 0. 0.5 to 0.1%. Whereas, you know, if you go to, you know, Harvard or Ivy League is around the 1% range for selectivity. So you just have to think that this is actually a really, really, really competitive space. And it's not, I'm not saying that because you should be competitive or you should, you know, it's a zero-sum game, but it's a relative competition, right? Which is that all these, some of these companies have been building for the past five years. Some of these founders have been building for the past 20 years across different startups. So not everybody's starting on the same, I don't know, set of skills. Not everyone's standing on the same geography. Not everybody is standing on the same product market fit in terms of level of achievement and maturity. So then the question then is, at that snapshot, then there is a bell curve that's happening, right? And I think that's, I think that's what a lot of VCs are kind of like scared to say, right? In that sense, right? Is that, hey, we're seeing a thousand companies. There's a bell curve that's happening. Where are you on that bell curve? And I remember I used mm-hmm. to be doing consulting case interviews and I always remember that, you know, I used, I think consulting is so similar. There's like less than 1% selection rate to become a consultant at Bain and so forth or BCG McKinsey. And so we do case prep, right? And then I remember we would just give each other case interviews to prepare for the interview. And then, you know, someone was like, oh, you know, I'm getting like a 6 out of 10. It's pretty good, right? And I'll be like, whoa, if you got a 6 out of 10, that means you're a flat out fail. Because the only people who's getting through are people who are getting 10 out of 10 or maybe 9.5 yeah. out of 10, right? So 6 out of 10 ain't good enough. And then mm. they'll be like, wow, Jeremy, that's really mean of you to say. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm not trying to be mean here. I do think you have a potential to get to 10, but you can't listen to, as, you know, if you're getting case interviews from current employees of the Bain companies, when they give you a 6 out of 10 or 7 out of 10, they're being very nice to you. But the gap between 7 and 9.5 is achievable and solvable you really really practice hard but you can't get suckered right by the niceness 
of these folks who are incentivized not to give you bad news. And so I think there's a big chunk about it is that I think as a founder, I had to really go through the experience all the time, which is mm-hmm. I would go to every interview and, and or VC pitch and everybody would be like, oh, that's a good pitch. But mm-hmm. then, you know, you can, nine out of 10 would say I've got a good pitch, but only one out of 100 would give me capital. So that's a big, yeah. big gap between what people are willing to tell you feedback versus what it actually means it is, right? And so I think yeah. for me, I think that's such a mind-boggling part and I think it's such a painful is I think it's a disservice for founders who are really high performance. Mm. Uh, but I also can understand why VCs feel uncomfortable giving that feedback directly. Yeah, VCs aren't exactly known for giving uh, a lot of useful feedback. And I, I understand there's, a, there's I've heard a number of explanations as to why, but it, it makes it very difficult for a founder to go back and then prove that they can learn from that feedback and come back better because it's basically a black box. They have to guess at it. Um, yeah, I mean, don't just crush it on revenue and then lock it on. Which, which is a challenge if you're like pre-seed or seed because you're going out trying to get that initial capital and you don't have as much of a track record. You can go out and start crushing it, but then you're basically bootstrapping. And then it's like, well, why do you need this capital if I can go out and get a million in revenue? I know, right? How frustrating it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ex- exa- exactly. The thing that I always struggle with, because, you know, I, I, I look more at the pre-seed and seed, and when you don't have a lot of those numeric metrics on traction, revenue, etc., it becomes much more of a people-centric uh, decision-making process. And as you said, you're looking at this snapshot in time. And yeah. a person can only evolve so much over, say, six months' time period. Yeah. But then trying to make a decision on, is this the type of person that can grow with the company and evolve? Do they have the growth mindset? So it's a very challenging sort of personality trait decision of, will they evolve? Many people will evolve, but will they evolve fast enough to keep pace with how difficult building a startup is? Yeah, and I think there's actually some great research, you know, because I'm a data guy, right? Yeah. So this is great research. It was like, you know, what age is the perfect age, you know, or the best startup outcomes, right? And basically what they're saying was like, hey, you know, if you're like 40 plus, mm. that actually has the highest percentage of home runs. Like as a founder, I'm just saying like, because of why? Because you're more experienced, you understand how to lead a team, you already have a network of talent that you can tap in you understand the problem, you have more capital resources, yep. you can avoid suicidal mistakes, um, and you can do compliance and company building discipline and cadences, right? And so all those things actually allow for people who are 40 plus to build great companies. Um, but of course, what's interesting is that then the people was like, however, it seems like VCs primarily fund people who are in their 20s. <laughs> It's, it's true. There's the, there's the contradictory evidence there. We only want to fund the 20-something-year-old that's fresh out of university. But we know that the, that the higher hit rate on successful outcomes is yeah. the mid-career person. Yeah, but, you know, I think the paper kind of like, you know, under the you know, next steps of research was like, yeah, maybe I think the hypothesis was that maybe VCs are able to get an outsized chunk yeah. of equity from people who are in their 20s because people in their 20s, unfortunately... Uh, have less capital resources. And so they require more of the support from VCs. They require more of that capital from VCs. But older folks, you know, they figure out how to bootstrap. They figure out how to use debt. They figure out how to use less equity on average uh, to have better outcomes for themselves, right? And so I think there's yeah. an interesting dynamic here, which is I think basically what we're trying to say here is at the end of the day, you know, let's be super real, right? VCs are not superheroes or demigods mm. who are spouting wisdom from Substack or podcasts like ourselves. <laughs> but the question is like, yeah, I think there can be a good marriage between good founders who are hungry and good VCs who are willing to do the work, right? And that match is a really, really good teamwork match that can happen. Um, but it's not the only way to succeed, right? Um, and I think there's a really interesting dynamic there, which is like there are bad VCs uh, and there are bad founders, right? And so I think the question is, you know, how does the market select for better VCs over time? And how does the market select for better founders over time? Yeah, yeah. Let, let, me, let me ask you on the aspect of how the market selects better VCs over time. 
you know, I find that in this region, it's fairly uncommon for a lot of the startup founders, not all, some do it, but a lot of the startup founders don't bother doing due diligence on the VCs themselves. They're just oftentimes happy to get the money and they don't actually look at what's the relationship going to be like with this VC or maybe not understanding that the relationship that they're building with one person in the company may two years later be over at another one. So they kind of, there's a, there seems to be a lack of understanding of they can choose and they have options as well. Well, although it may yeah. not always seem that way. <laughs> yeah. I think we've talked about it in the previous, uh, brave, uh, Southeast Asia podcast mm. where we talk about how to structure the fundraising process. But I think fundamentally, I think the reason why people don't choose the VCs is because they don't set themselves up to have choice. So what I mean by that is like, you know, I think when, I think there's a lot of suboptimal fundraising in this ecosystem. So founders basically kind of like dribble their way in terms of their fundraising process. And so they often end up sometimes with only one term sheet or oftentimes zero term sheets, right? You know, and so when you have a choice between zero or one, effectively, what's the point of due diligence anyway? Just sign yeah. the capital and take the money, right? And then just fingers crossed, hope that, you know, everything works out. But I think on the other hand, I think what we see from the best founders who are the best at fundraising is that they're often on the other end of the scale. They have multiple term sheets, right? They have mm -hmm. multiple people trying to get into the round and then they get a pick. And so I think, I think the thing is, if you structure your process so that you have multiple choices, then I think the founders would naturally be able to do the instinctive work to pick and select. But I think yeah. that's where the gap is. I, th I think there's some ch challenges depending upon what the stage the company is in and what, which yeah. are the markets that they're located in. 100%. Because what, what I've seen as the, as the region has started to evolve, and it's evolved very rapidly in regards to where the startup ecosystem was when I first moved into the region versus where it is now. But what I've seen is that as it's, as it's developed, you've also ended up getting this, um, we don't cross borders for small checks sort of play to where the pre-seed and the seed has kind of been relegated back into national hands for the most part, right. many exceptions to that. But it has played into, so Malaysia, where I'm at, there's not a lot of options. So it may by default really be a zero or one. Um, you may be able to get some angels if you have family network or business network, or maybe if you're one of the mid-career 40-somethings that has a network externally, you might be able to scrape together some angels, but it can be quite a challenge to get options sometimes. Oh, 100%, right? You know, let's not BS this, right? Is that capital availability is both time-dependent and geography-dependent, right? So, you know, one way to look at this is, compared to 10 years ago, compared to now, I was a founder 10 years ago. The capital availability today is way better than where it was 10 years yeah. ago. 10 years ago, it was like, nobody called themselves an angel. Nobody, there was like, you know, you know there was the first wave of seed VCs came to existence, right? So mm -hmm. I was hanging out in the same, you know, one co-working space that existed in Singapore. And I was hanging out with Golden Gate Ventures and Jungle Ventures who were both using the same co-working space, right? Like those were the first two VCs on the scene, right? Yeah, so, yeah. And that's in Singapore, right? Which today seems to be, a, you know, like a wonderful heaven for capital in Southeast Asia. But 10 years ago, it didn't exist, right? And so, you know, I think the fact, fact and function of this is that hopefully as long as, you know, economics continue working, as asset flows continue working, as the economy keeps working, then in 10 years' time, there'll be even more capital, for example, uh, in Southeast Asia, right? So that's one aspect to it. But two is, yeah, you know, I traveled uh, to Manila and Vietnam over the past few months. And yeah, there is an absolute difference in funding, right? You know, I go to Manila and I sit down and the founders are saying, hey, you know, um, I receive a check for 70000 for, you know, effectively 30 to 40% equity of the company. Oh so, my. <laughs> yeah, and that's norm, right? You know, and, you know, that's what's on the table, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think the simple fact of the matter is that I think there's a huge range of liquidity uh, in terms of capital across the ecosystem. And so, you know, I think the awkward reality is that it's harder as a result to build startups in some ecosystems and easier mm. to build startups in other ecosystems. I mean, I mean, what do you want me to say? Like, oh, you know, like opportunity is equally distributed? No, it's not. You know, talent yeah. is equally distributed, but opportunity absolutely is not. 
And so I think it's really incumbent on the founder. As a result, I think if you're entrepreneurial, I think that's the awkward reality is you have the dream about what to build, but you also have to see reality for what it is. And so if you're in a liquidity tight market, then you got to figure out how do I be even more disciplined right, mm -hmm. about raising capital, right? Compared to everybody else in SF. If you're a founder, you have the right background, you can walk around, people are looking, banging on your door, right? You know, you go to the dinner parties, the concentration density is such so high yeah. that I've known founders who basically fundraise based on serendipity, right? In the sense that there are VCs who are hunting for them. There's way more capital. And so capital is competing with each, each other to allocate capital to founders. Whereas great founders are rare, right? In some markets. And so I think that's really the kind of conversation we're going to have here is that if you are in a cap market with less capital, it's even more important that you have an even more disciplined process where you're, for example, tackling local founders, local angels, structuring around very carefully so that it's not a binary issue, but a kind of a path decision where you can have different forms of capital in. You can be thoughtful about your capital efficiency. Um, and you need to make sure that you, know, you do everything right for control rights and economic share, right? So, of course, unfortunately, is that many of the markets are even more capital constrained. Unfortunately, those are often correlated where the information is even more asymmetric, right? Where it's harder to understand all this information. And so I think that's where I think podcasts like yours and mine and these conversations are really important because people just get to hear this and figure out like, you know, what needs to be done. Yeah, and I find like the example that you gave of a relatively small investment size for 30, 40% of a company when I when I talk to people, well, founders, because I haven't actually talked to the investors, but from my viewpoint, it's actually going to make it harder for that company to follow a path of fundraising because they've already given up too much dilution, which for the investor, it's actually making the probability of an outsized outcome lesser because yeah. they were too aggressive with the terms. 100%. And I find that there's an education aspect that needs to happen with some of these angel networks in these locations that are perhaps in process of developing or otherwise. And it's hard to figure out how do you get to that audience? Yeah, and I think investors will only find out in two years or three years when they start selling to the Series A, Series B, Series C, the US or global investors that you know the management team needs to be recapitalized with management options in order to give them enough motivation to keep pushing for a big outcome. Or they may discover earlier that because of that big slice they took out, you know, the company never even gets there, right? And so I think that's an interesting dynamic, which is, is a learning process for investors in terms of ecosystem. And secondly, for founders, I think there's a learning process where um, they have to have the exam conversation where they said, hey, I listened to Kevin and Jeremy discuss this. This was what was offered to me. I'm going to say the exact same thing. And I'm going to forward this clip to the investor. Yeah. and say, hey, if you disagree, go talk to Kevin and Jeremy about this. And then, you know, let's figure out a different way, right? Maybe it's 20% um, or 25%, I think that's okay. But maybe there are different control rights that you want to take as a result, right? Maybe there are different yeah. economics or preferences, stuff like that that makes it such that, you know, there is a sizable outcome if there is a home run, right? And so those are the yeah. conversations that we can have. Uh, so I think for investors who are listening to this, mm -hmm. yes, I, you know, I think let's mature, let's figure out what the long-term game is. But I think for founders as well, who are listening in, or operators or executives who are helping founders, this is something that has to be learned as well. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I, th I think, I mean, the people that are putting these term sheets out there with these aggressive terms, you know, they're, you know they've, accu they've accumulated wealth. So it's, they're savvy business people. But I think the challenge is, is the disconnect between the types of deals that they're historically accustomed to doing in the corporate environment versus startup funding, which is more of a pathway as opposed to like a one-off deal where you're trying to extract as much out of it as possible. I'd love if at some point, if all of a sudden I get a call from a founder or some angel investor somewhere saying, hey, I was referred over to your podcast episode. Could you chat with me about the terms that we're getting ready to put on a deal? I think that would be a measure of success, yeah? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think it kind of makes sense in some circumstances, but I think if the investor told me, hey, we believe that the majority of outcomes are going to be private equity outcomes. We don't expect mm. them to raise a ton of capital. We don't expect them to raise from Series B, Series C tech companies. Sure. So we're taking this large chunk. I would be like, okay, that's a rational investment strategy, right? Uh, but I think there are many aspects where, you know, this kind of like falls apart, right? 
But I, I, and I think the good news is that, you know, as I talk to more folks in the ecosystem, I mean, the truth is a lot of these, like, you know, what I just said is, you know, kind of like non-standard or at least non-suggested. But the truth is 10 years ago in Singapore, that was pretty common too, right? You know, mm. um, so I think it's a function of time, you know, founders wising up to this, information asymmetry dropping. Um, and once they, everybody figures it out, then I think kind of converge on what the, I think not necessarily rules of the game because it implies a lot more standardization and agreement than it actually is. But at least, you know, kind of like what are the common norms that, you know, we kind of expect of one another. So let, let, me, let me switch gears a little bit because we've, we've been talking about the evolution of the, of the ecosystem here in this part of the world. And I'm curious when you look at uh, where it's come from, where it is today, what are the opportunities? Are there, are there any particular industries or spaces within the ecosystem that you're particularly excited upon? And maybe it's not industry, maybe it's geography, maybe it's something else. What gets you excited when you say, what is the next five, ten years looking like? Yeah, I think there's some interesting, uh, you know, theses that are out there. I mean, I think obviously, I think we've looked at different companies. And so uh, we do have a podcast series coming out soon, which is like, I think, eight ways to get to a billion dollars in Southeast Asia. Okay. So I think that's gonna be a fun one. Uh, this, this is called me speculating about how okay. to do it. But I'll, I'll give you a heads up about a couple of them, right? I think one of the big ones, obviously, is going to be like, um, historically, I think one approach has been what we call like, um, Singapore first, but kind of like go regional with a single player, right? So that's your Grab, um, there's some of your lending companies, so fintech companies especially. So that's one approach that people have done, which is looking for that one vertical that can kind of service on a regional basis that's relatively capital efficient, kind of grow. Uh, for example, fintech is relatively painful in terms of fixed costs, but relatively easy to scale in terms of servicing multiple geographies, right? So that's one approach. Uh, two, of course, I think we've seen a big chunk of them in Indonesia. We've seen these like tech-enabled productivity improvements. So whether that's on fisheries or kind of like um, tokotanis or so so forth, distribution mm. hubs, agriculture. But basically, we're taking a relatively asset-heavy industry and we're trying to improve the efficiency through IoT, through trading, through processing. So um, I think we see sub-versions of that in Vietnam, in Thailand, for example, um, and then a third version of course is that you know they're doing Vietnam or Thailand but then they're trying to do this but also use multiple blades of monetization right so if you do one blade of monetization it's not sufficient to do that in a com country that has 30 million people because it's not believable I'm using some air quotes here uh, <laughs> from the VC perspective that the total addressable market is big enough so you need to add other products that lets you monetize the same customer segment um and this is somewhat super app, somewhat one-stop shop, you know, somewhat consolidation, but I think we see sure. somewhat conglomerate, but I think that's one way that people try to make the market size work for individual countries, which is relatively capital efficient. Um, and of course, another way people are tackling it, for example, is SaaS. So kind of like building from Southeast Asia, but a global SaaS, regional SaaS tool. Um, and lastly, I think there's another one that's coming up is kind of like, you know, what I call like, you know, the ocean strategy, right? So it's less about you know, individual countries, but more about the links between countries, right? So about uh, tourism, trade, shipping, right? Logistics. Um, there's a lot of flows between countries in ASEAN. And so you're not necessarily playing in the land areas, but you're really playing on the what I call hub to hub or the ocean or the, you know, the air, the airspace, the blank space between countries that are very much uh, painful, right? So you see like regulatory compliance or customs, clearing so these mm -hmm. kind of things um, that's about easing commerce or trade or movement right uh, so that's five uh, at a high level you gotta tune in i guess for the other three more we, we've gotten the teaser now we have to tune in for the remaining three I of know, how we're right? gonna end up getting them and then tonight you just see me like scribbling more like, okay i need to finish my <laughs> script notes you know? i gotta make them good you know <laughs> The last three have to be the best now. That's the best we now. save yeah. save the best for last. Trillion dollar ideas. There we go. Trillion dollar <laughs> push. There we go. Competing with Apple for the largest market cap is is, is that is that last one? Yeah, yeah, definitely three trillion dollars. <laughs> yeah, I know, I honestly never thought that I'd see a company at that market cap. But I guess the longer things go, the more uh, outsized the outcomes can end up potentially being. Okay. Yeah, uh, I mean, it was interesting. We did analysis recently. And if you look at the top 50 companies in market cap, 
there's actually a sizable number of them are just flat out semiconductor chips. It's no yeah. joke, right? It's not even like, it's not even, I mean, Apple is pretty much a semiconductor <laughs> manufacturing yeah. or aggregator at this point now. But if you look at market cap, I think the biggest verticals, honestly, semiconductors is in, in terms of like, you know, they have everything, right? You have the economies of scale from manufacturing, you have the IP advantage in terms of patents, but you also have, I think, the defensiveness around talent, right? And then you have these agglomeration effects of suppliers and customers. I mean, it's bonkers. So NVIDIA, obviously, and then all the various semiconductors, um, Intel, and so forth, are huge. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, the amount of compute power that we're going to require with more AI, with all of these other things that are going on, is just going to drive more and more demand. There's, there's, no, there's no visibility of any sort of turning back. We're, we're adopting more uh, implementation of digital in every modality, whether 100%. it's in vehicles, whether it's in new models, etc. So uh, I, I do think that the hardware is a very difficult space to invest in. Especially if you're doing new things, at least from my viewpoint. Um, yeah. I mean, it's great but, to invest in if you're a debt holder. <laughs> yeah. Deployment, <laughs> I'm just saying. Or banker, or investment banker. It's just that, unfortunately, VC, which is, you know, the mandates around 10-year horizons. Or something yeah. Like that, I see. yeah. Now, that's hard because of the timeline side. Yeah, there's some deep tech fans coming out that are more like 15 year sort of style. They're trying to break the traditional model, but it's it's it hasn't really um, it hasn't really become a common thing yet. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, the truth is you also need a ton of government subsidies and government support. Right. I mean, every semiconductor plant around the world, 100 percent is in close partnership with the local government on everything sanitation environmental talent recruiting like you know it's, i think it's a huge amount of work so i think the only way to make economics work for semiconductor is i think that take, factoring in the national i don't know what to call it you can say national security subsidy or you know uh, grants or you know but you know i think there's a huge tailwind that really comes in from that side Certainly, certainly. Speaking, speaking of, you know, because that, that made my head go to the, the shifting of geopolitics and all of that and looking at where the new growth areas are, shifting of trade patterns as in the post-COVID world where people are kind of trying to reconfigure their supply chains. How do you see some of this playing out within the startup ecosystem for Southeast Asia, which is at a pretty interesting geography for global trade? I mean, I think global trade is something that's been happening for thousands and thousands of years, sure. right? Um, and I think that Southeast Asia has often been at the nexus of this. In fact, I was just, last night I was watching YouTube, I'm a history buff, and I was just reading about this interesting piece where, you know, the Chinese were basically describing the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire had records of how to describe the Chinese Empire. But basically what was happening was that the Chinese basically described that Rome had silk. And so... What was happening was that they were like, oh, Rome has silkworms and, you know, their silk is much lighter and has their own unique designs. So what happened was that actually China, obviously, was the only place in the world that had silkworms at the time. And they were exporting it via the Parthian Empire, which is somewhere in Central Mm -hmm. Asia. And then they would, Central Asia would then ship it off to Rome. And Rome would unbundle the silk and reweave it into Roman uh, silk. Right, which was then later sometimes re-exported back to China via the Parthian Empire in the middle. <laughs> and so what was interesting about this entire process was that the Parthian Empire had actually... So, 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 so again, the Chinese thought that the Romans had silkworms. So it turns out the Parthian Empire told the Chinese that the Romans had silkworms, that these things were built by Roman silkworms because they didn't want China to know they had a monopoly on silkworms which would mm. allow China to jack up the price and so China was like great like their Roman silkworms yeah it's not as good as ours but it's interesting and so we're not going to raise our prices too much otherwise you know they're not going to buy from us and I was just laughing because I was just like man these middlemen are just like trying to crush it on both ends right you know like, a very clever middleman playing that kind of back and forth I know it's like you know they just told the emissary from China it's like you want to visit Rome if you go there, you might die. It may take you forever. So you should just go back to China, right? Because you don't want the Chinese emissary to go to Rome and find out they had no silkworms, yeah. you know? It'd be totally bad for commerce, right? Anyway, yeah. this is like, honestly, like over 2,000 years ago, right? So I was just like mm. reading this and I was like, man, 
2,000 years ago, people were having this like global trade issue anyway. Um, and I, you know, I think it's funny because you know, in a part of those stories, they were, they were talking about obviously uh, primarily actually all that trade was happening through Southeast Asia, so mm. and Central Asia, right? And so there's this interesting conversation where, you know, I think Southeast Asia is very much impacted between East and West, right? Um, you know, you look at the Straits of Malacca, you know, you know, it's been on every map of the Chinese and Indians for like centuries because everything had to flow, right? It's like you know you. Mm. All your silks, your ceramics, your porcelain, your tea, heck, later on, opium. You know, all that stuff all just went through, you know, the kind of like these trade routes. Um, and I think South, everyone in Southeast Asia is very, very glued to this geopolitical dynamic right now, which is what is going on and how is it going to change, right? Um, I don't know. Uh, you ask me, I, I think it can go bad real quick. Um, I think there's a lot of folks who are pushing to be confrontational and push hard for conflict and I think the truth is you know conflict can be very profitable for some people right uh, I think it's terrible for most people including myself uh, you know and I think it's definitely terrible I mean you know I, I have reservists I have obligations to the Singapore military for mm -hmm. training and I can tell you right now that I do not want to go to war I'm happy to train for war I'm happy to defend the country <laughs> but war is terrible I mean it's just flat out death right and so I just think but I think the truth is even so there are huge economic incentives to go to war and there's huge policy incentives to go to war because it's a form of diplomacy right um, so I, I think the truth is I, you know I think there's a very strong pro-war contingent um, that wants things to go sideways um, or at least be okay with things going sideways to prove who's on top and I think that's absolutely terrible for everybody in Southeast Asia um, and for most people around the world, right? I mean, I think that's, I think the simple fact is like we look at, you know, the Ukraine-Russia conflict right now, um, you know, inflation has gone up, interest rates have gone up, you know, a huge part of it is just because of that decoupling of trade, right? That's already happening. And imagine if that was happening in uh, other economies, I think it'd be totally devastating, right? And so I think, you know, I think for me, my hope is, you know, peace, right? You know, peace, let's resolve things like, you know, diplomats, you know, let's do handshakes, let's have as many private conversations, let's negotiate and strike a deal, right, whatever that deal is, uh, that respects of various priorities, um, and then let's move on with life, right, you know, let's build, let's manufacture, let's make lives better, right, with technology and cost of living and everything else, right. Yeah, wholly agree on that. Hopefully, uh, it doesn't come to that because obviously, it doesn't uh, it doesn't benefit everyone. Um, get, getting back on a on a on a on a positive note here, as as we're kind of coming to the to the end of the allotted time, let, let's let's wrap up with one one closing question here. So, if you were to talk to a startup founder that's just getting going uh, anywhere here within the Southeast Asia region. What would be the number one biggest piece of advice that you could offer? I think triangulate your advice as much as possible. So I think there are many founders across Southeast Asia and they're building. Um, and of course, everybody gets advice. I used to get advice up the wazoo, right? You know, from every VC, from every operator, whatever it is. Um, I think the hard part about it was that I had to triangulate really, really hard. And what by triangulate is means that, you know, do I, am I looking at this from a financial prism? Am I looking at this from a builder prism? Am I looking at this from an education tech prism? You know, there's many prisms that are possible. And so, and there's also good advice and there's bad advice, right? And there's good conditional advice and there's bad conditional advice. So I think it depends on that. And triangulating that is really, really, really important because you can go sideways really, really quick when you listen to the right advice at the wrong time or the wrong advice at the right time, right? It just go sideways. And so that triangulation is really key, but it's even more so important in Southeast Asia because of what you mentioned earlier, right? Which is that we are in different geographies at different market maturities, right? With different capital liquidities, right? So for example, there's some advice that on Substack, I always remember, I was reading this advice and what they said was like, yeah, you know, when you talk to investors, you know, kind of like, it's okay to burn through a whole bunch of the, you know, tier three or tier two VCs because there's so many of them is using the practice. And I was looking at the Substack and I was just like, 
oh, this works in SF, but this does not work if you're in, for example, Malaysia mm. or in Vietnam because there's so few local VCs, right? You know, and so you can't afford to burn relationships or use them as practice ones because there aren't that many, as you said, right? So we had to yeah. be aware that that advice works for the US market when you're X amount of whatever, but it doesn't work in some, some markets, right? And there's other markets, I think we look at Indian business models or Chinese mm. business models. And there's a lot of folks who want to localize. But one thing that we often talk about on the podcast is that localization requires you to localize, which is that you take the business model and then you have to learn very quickly about what works and what doesn't work and you have to pivot accordingly, right? And so I think a lot of folks end up being very brittle because they're working on one type of business model because they saw it work somewhere else, but it doesn't work. And so that localization piece is really important. And the truth is, most Substacks, you know, or Medium articles in America does, do not talk about localization at all. Because no. the truth is, if you're an American startup building either you're creating a category in terms of tech, right? Or if you are building, you don't need to localize. I mean, the difference yeah. between Boston and New York is negligible, let alone SF, right? You know, or Chicago, right? So yeah. there's no manual or localization for product market fit, right? So... No. I can learn about blitz scaling, sure, which assumes a whole bunch of US criteria. I can learn about product market fit, but there's no book on or handbook on lo localization, right? So I'm just saying like, I think we need to have that conversation over and over again, which is that I think in, especially for founders of Asia, you have to triangulate, you know, you have to talk to, you have to read, of course, the American Substacks. Why not, right? Everybody yeah. has Substack. But just because you're Substack doesn't mean you're credential, doesn't mean you're legit. Hmm. Uh, so you gotta talk to local experts you got to talk to your customers over and over again. you got to talk to the people you trust. you got to talk to your co-founder and say, hey, what do we really understand the market? Because the truth is, I think after one year of work, I often find that a local founder in Asia knows way more than whatever is on Substack. Because, you know, I've met folks who are doing wholesale for phones, right? And they're just like, they understand the market way better than anything else. And that market information is not available on the no. internet. It's zero, right? So I'm like, I tell them, they're like asking me for advice and tell them, look, you're smarter than me on this now because, you know, Jeremy's real good at reading Twitter. Jeremy's real good at reading Reddit and, you know, Substack. But I can generalize and I'm getting educated by the founders across the region. But the domain expertise is thin. And so because of that, founders are often the best domain experts after a while, but they have to triangulate that advice over and over again. Yeah, taking uh, taking the advice that you read in a Substack or elsewhere with a grain of salt and understanding that it may not necessarily be 100% applicable. So don't just copy paste it blindly. Uh, yeah. Being able to tri triangulate, being able to get the better lens on understanding. I couldn't agree more with you. Yeah, but I mean, I love reading Substack though. I mean, everything yeah. seems so convenient, so simple. They draw a pyramid and I'm like, oh. I get this pyramid, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have my favorite people that I follow, whether it's on like product-led growth and all of these. Oh, yeah, product-led like, growth. Everybody's dream in Southeast Asia, right? Yeah, and yeah, It's so yeah, hard absolutely. to do in Southeast Asia. It's really hard, but you have examples coming out of Australia, which have like yeah. been able to do it very well as a small population market. And when you look at the fragmentation, you're like, wow, this is the holy grail. This is, this is, what, this is what I need to get if I could only unlock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then suddenly you're out, you know, working with, people who have never bought a SaaS tool ever before and self-service doesn't work. So yeah, how fast are yeah. you learn that product-led growth doesn't work if they require or used to hands-on sales? Yeah, if you require hands-on yeah. sales, what's the price point that you now need to sell at in order to make that justified? Right, right. I'm still holding out the faith that it can work. It just needs to be with a local flair on how it's messaged and delivered. Uh, so still kind of anticipating that we will it's just a matter of who's going to localize that approach in a way that actually fits with the dynamics of somebody that hasn't bought SaaS before. How are you going to make 100%. that pathway easier? Um, when, you're, when you're like a San Francisco-based company and you're like, all right, I'm going to, buy, I'm going to subscribe to my 50th SaaS tool. Um, yeah, it's an easy thing. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> it's really easy to sell people to SaaS if they already bought SaaS. Yeah, SMEs. You know. Yeah, ex exactly, exactly. People, the people that are still like walking around a factory floor with a clipboard and a, and a pencil is, and trying to give them a digital solution is not always the easiest thing. I mean, um, you look at Singapore, right? Singapore is throwing tens of thousands, even not hundreds of thousands of dollars of grants on a per company basis to implement SaaS, right? 
Yeah, yeah. It's still I think every country in, in Southeast Asia has similar programs. Malaysia has it and Indonesia has it and everywhere has these sort of programs. And it's, it's tough to get that digitalization rate of enterprise up. Yeah, it's a slog. Um, and, it, and it's okay to have a slog as long as you forecast and budget it accordingly and you plan it and you have the workforce to it. But the problem is, again, it goes back to your advice, right? If your company is too brittle in the sense that you're 100% focused on product-led growth, and you keep hammering on that hammer for like six months, but you only have one year of runway left. That's when bad things happen, right? Because you, the rate of learning that you have to, to pivot is bounded by how much capital you have, right? And so I think your rate of learning is really, really key, a triangulation of advice. Absolutely, absolutely. Jeremy, this, is, this has been a super fascinating conversation. We're going to end up having to have you back in order to get delve into some further details because there's, I'm sure there's a lot of topics people want to hear that we didn't necessarily get into. But because we referenced the eight uh, way pathways to get to a billion and we only li- talked about five, how can people find you and how can people find the podcast as well? Yeah, go to www.bravesea.com. Uh, the Brave Southeast Asia Tech Podcast has basically uh, resources in terms of podcasts uh, that discuss all these various topics as well as lots of local leaders across the region. But secondly as well, I think we do also have a community in terms of WhatsApp and various groups for people and founders especially to discuss and debate ideas as well. And lastly, of course, you know, we do offer some various you know, resources uh, like you know, books and advice on how to fundraise. Um, that we're launching right uh, over the coming months so that's a really interesting time uh, for anybody who's interested to uh, check it out very cool fantastic Jeremy again thank you very much for being on and I hope everyone ends up taking a track of of the material that that Jeremy was just talking about All right, that wraps it up for another fantastic episode of The Sea of Startups. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, go on to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It's the best way for us to get discovered and to have these startup stories reach a broader audience. If you have any suggestions or would like to get in touch, you can email me at kevin at indelible.vc. As always, I'm your host, Kevin Brockland from Indelible Ventures, and this is The Sea of Startups.